Good morning. I, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, page 814 in our church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 13 to verse 25. 13 to 25. We're kind of a third of the way through this passage, this difficult passage of 1 Corinthians 14. So we're going to read it and do what um, we must and ask God for his help. Verse 13. For this reason, picking up on what he said in the first 12 verses, for this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand, say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, it's say sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So... If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, they will. Verse 24. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Amen. God, give us understanding of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, it was a privilege to sing especially the last song that brought tremendous encouragement to us of the depth of your love. You don't abandon us when we get things wrong. We could have whole streaks of doing things wrong. And because of Jesus and our position in Christ, we have a loving Father who keeps pouring out love, keeps looking for ways to forgive and to help. And we thank you, God, for this tremendous privilege that we have if we're in Christ this morning. And so, God, as we approach this moment, uh, my uselessness and inadequacy is apparent apart from your grace. And because the people before you now are too precious in the moment far too weighty to try and trust in our own strength or power or wisdom, our confidence is always is in you and you alone. So we're going to need your help. So will you please give to us this morning clarity of thought, 
readiness of mind, and obedience of life as you make this church, which is your church, a church you deeply love, a church you'll never abandon, a church which Jesus Christ died for, be what you desire it to be. And we would ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, I started with a disclaimer. I think I'm going to do it again. If you're half asleep or yesterday's 70 degree temperatures wore you out, um, I'm not going to be able to help you this morning. But I can promise you this. Well, under God, I can promise you this. As we get through this, there's, a, I think, a tremendous payoff for all of us here that are in Christ. So if you hold the line through the talk, and as we come to a close, I think and I hope that we'll get a beautiful picture, a huge picture of how necessary and how weighty and important public worship is. So that, that's my hope. Okay? All right. Well, as we begin then, let's just say this. I think we know this, that there are many um, voices which would try and tell us how we ought to live and how we can know God personally. Uh, some of them are good. Some of them are not. When it comes to pop, proper public worship, which is the context here in these verses this morning, um, it's the same thing. There are many voices which would try and say, this is how you do it, and this is how you don't. Some of them are helpful. Many of them are not, which is why. Of all the voices that we might listen to in those things, as God's kids, um, there's one voice which we have to listen to. It's the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes to us from the pages of his word. And as we listen to him, we then measure all those other voices in light of his one voice. The book of Judges in the Old Testament has, in the very last verse uh, of the very last chapter, the very disturbing phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That could very well be the mantra of the average person in the West. But if there ever was a philosophy which was guiding the church in Corinth, especially in the uses and abuses of the gifts, and especially in public worship, it was essentially Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they would define truth in the way that they thought best and the way they would like it to work for them, which was wrong. And they needed God's truth given to them and understandable truth, if you would, which is always right. And so it's very, very important that we understand as God's kids that God is a loving, gracious God. And he doesn't play mind games with his children concerning the truth. The main and plain things of the Bible are just that. They're main and plain. And they're not impossible to know. So when the Bible speaks of truth... It's not speaking of some vague or variable or kind of mystical thing. Rather, it is addressing something that is revealed, objective, defined, and absolute, and, and impartial, to be real honest with you. So the kind of truth then, this kind of truth, which is truth, it can't be discovered as a result of looking inside of ourselves. And it's not the kind of truth which is discovered in some kind of you know, mystical or paranormal activity. And this is not the truth of the kind of truth which is, I think, in vogue in contemporary culture, which is the kind of truth where the person can fit to adjust every age and stage of their life and essence being what the said in Judges, doing what was right in their own eyes. But rather, this is the truth that God has revealed concerning himself. It's embodied ultimately, finally, fully, and savingly in the person and work of Jesus Christ who said, and many of you know this memorable phrase, that he is the way and he is the truth. So, 
to make it as simple as I can, when it comes to the public worship of Jesus Christ, again, our context here, and the spiritual uses of his spiritual gifts, again, uh, in the context here, Jesus knows how he wants to be worshipped, and he knows that he ought to be worshipped. And the Christian should know that it is an incredible grace that we even can practice public worship. And Christ knows that we are helped when we do worship because it's part of his nature. He just pours himself out as we pour ourselves out. And Jesus knows that worship, a worship service, when it's done in the way that pleases him and the gifts are used proper, if your Bible's open, verse 25, it can be very evangelistic so that the unbeliever will fall down and worship God and say, God is really among you. So I want you to see as we move through this that a public worship service, no matter what our experiences have been, a public worship service is a fantastic place for people to get to know Jesus and, can be, and be converted by him. So Jesus will tell us how, how worship is going to take place. And he tells us how the spiritual gifts given for us in worship ought to be used. And they're used as a central point of here of chapter 14 to edify, to build up the church in order that when those gifts are used rightly, the doors of that church are open as wide as they can be, right? Even for tongue speakers, as we'll work through this, as wide as they can be, everybody's welcome. And that is enhanced as believers keep the main things, the plain things, and the plain thing, the main things, right? So in the opening 12 verses then of 1 Corinthians 14, we saw that according to Paul, the great privilege of the Christian in the exercise of their gifts was to build up others, right? Build up the believers, including and also the outsiders and the inquirers, verses 23, 4, and 5, in the local church. And that was the all-encompassing principle, which was to guide the Christian in their use of their spiritual gifts. And therefore, any gift which did not fulfill that objective, right, the building up of the church, any gift which did not fill that objective should be set in their proper place, and even in some circumstances, unused in the public assemblies. And of course, the Corinthian church had that completely turned around. They thought that the main and plain goal of public worship and the main and plain goal of um, the use of spiritual gifts was to simply edify themselves. So this whole thing was all about them. And public worship was only about what they experienced individually. And that type of self-centeredness ought to have been foreign to the transforming work of the gospel in their lives. They're still Christians. Okay, you understand that. But, but sadly, it wasn't foreign to them, even as Christians, on account of their massive immaturity, especially in the things that matter most. Paul, so Paul writes to them and says, verse 3 and following, our gifts are for the edifying of others and helping others. So even in public worship, the concern is to edify others, to, to delight in God and to enjoy his blessing and be part of his family. This requires then that the gospel be always changing the hearts of the true Christian so that our concern, again, verse 3, and then verses 6 to 12, our concern replaces a kind of self-centered display and namely tongues in the church in Corinth, which benefited only the speaker or the user of the gift, which again, that's foreign to the very character of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he came to serve and he didn't come to be served. 
And he came to give his life as a ransom for the church. And then a proper, spiritually mature Christian does exactly that same thing. Which is one of the reasons why the church is so fantastic, right? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is committed to the church, local. And the local church is at the very center of the plans for Jesus to save the world. Now, in the verses before us this morning, Paul is continuing on this theme which said that prophecy, remember we said prophecy is the word of the Lord from the word of the Lord. Prophecy spoken is superior to speaking in tongues. And central to his argument is this matter of edification, of intelligibility, which tongues then by themselves can't provide. So what Paul does then in these verses, he begins to lay down these conditions for those who are speaking in tongues. This is apostolic injunction. This is um, imperative. Do this. Verse 13, right? For this reason. For what reason? Well, Paul is piggybacking on what he said in verse 12. Verse 12, since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, super, try to excel in gifts that build up the church, right? The assembly of God people. And that is a telltale sign of genuine spirituality. Now, I want you to get that. Genuine spirituality is building up the church in the place where Jesus put you. Now, one might have expected that Paul would say, you know what, we're going to shut this tongues thing down altogether. No more. And instead of speaking in tongues, he would say, all right, I want everyone to have the gift of prophecy. But clearly, he does not do this. And it's important that he does it. Verse 13, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he interprets what he says. So again, the issue for Paul is intelligibility. Intelligibility for edification. His concern then, listen carefully, his concern is for any form of worship which bypasses the mind is to be removed from worship. Okay? So Paul's not saying that when you come in here, you're looking for an emotional experience. No, it begins with the mind. Verse 4, the tongue speaker's mind is what? You see it there. It's unfruitful. Nobody's help. So Paul's concern is with uninterpreted tongues and not tongues itself. And what he's doing then is he's following what he said in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 there. He's doing it great. He's trying to be all things to all people, including tongue speakers. So he's not trying to shut tongue speakers out of the church. Now get that. Paul is simply saying, as always, is, you know what, guys? I have one eye in here, and I have one eye out there. I'm concerned about what, what's happening in here. So there has to be order in here so that the outsider and the insider can, can understand what's happening. And frankly, tongues doesn't do that. So what is Paul doing? Well, Paul is remembering everyone and everything. A sign of maturity. If he came in here and was only thinking about himself and public worship and what he was getting, what he wasn't getting, what he was feeling and wasn't feeling, that would be complete immaturity. But the mature Christian has the eye on everyone else and it's particularly the outsider, the inquirer, and then themselves last. And so Paul says then at the end of verse 13 to the tongue speaker, it is right for you to pray that you can become one who interprets what he says. Intelligibility. Now, verse 14, Paul begins to use himself as an example. For if I speak in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying what he always has been saying, intelligibility. Verse 2, he's been saying this since the beginning. Speaking in tongues 
is a form of prayer, right? Verse 2, speaking in tongues is not speaking to men, but to God. Now, at the core of that is prayer. Now, some of you may have been in worship services where tongues was practiced as words from God to men and women. But again, the scripture's clear. It's a word from men and women that they don't know in their spirit what's happening to God. Let me just pause for a second. You cannot let your experience judge the scripture. You have to let the scripture judge your experience. And again, most of us are worship, or most of us are used to when we think of tongues is tongues a word from God to us, and the Bible's like, no, no, it's actually people praying uh, to God. So tongues is not a super secret message from God to the church during a worship service. That might, that might be what people think, but that's not what it is. Tongues is a prayer from the person to God. So the fact that he says, verse 13, if someone speaks in a tongue, and then in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, it doesn't mean there's two separate events. There's not. The follow the flow. Tongues, verse 2, is speaking to God, which speaking to God is simply prayer. However, the fact of the matter is that when a person speaks in a tongue, there is no activity in the mind. And using our mind is part and parcel of intelligible and intelligent prayer, right? Praying in tongues, Paul goes on to say, verse 14, yields no mental or intellectual value to him at all. And therefore, it will clearly be unfruitful where? In the church and the people listening to the tongue. And therein, he takes us right back to the central theme, which is this, the edification of the church, the edification of others, building up others in the church. Clearly then, if the person engaged in tongues has, has no idea what he's saying, his mind being unengaged, then you can be pretty sure that no one else is going to know what he's saying either. Hence the question, verse 15, so what shall I do? And his answer is there before you. I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll, I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. In other words, I won't come into public worship with my brain turned off, right, shoved in my back pocket. This is a thinking, feeling experience. So if I don't, quote, get into it, then, then okay, then it's all lost. No, Paul is not saying that. He's not looking for that. There's no real value in that uh, public worship if that's all your concern is. But the beautiful and gracious balance here is Paul saying, listen, I will continue to use tongues, but for the sake of others in the ecclesia, in the public gathering of God's people and other people, I will speak in an intelligible language. What at that time uh, would have been Greek. Now there's a gentleman named Leon Morris. He makes a terrific point about the vital right place of the mind in prayer and in praise. And this is what he says. It is not that Paul is calling for some kind of barren intellectualism to replace trivial emotionalism. But rather, he's arguing for the combination to which Jesus spoke of in John 4 when the Samaritan woman at the well, with the, with the Samaritan woman at the well. The day is coming, Jesus said, and indeed has now come when they that worship the Father, okay, will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, numos, the, the inner man, and in truth, the intellectual man, right? Good worship. Inner man, intellectual man, engaged. Not one, not one, but both. 
So the Samaritans had emotionalism in their worship, but they didn't have any truth. The Jews had truth to a degree, but they had no emotion to it. And so what Jesus was saying was this. When worship truly takes place, pleasing to the Father, it's not a circus, but it's not a funeral home. There must be food for the mind, theology. And the food for the mind then serves as fuel for the spirit, which can set in motion a wholehearted engagement in the worship, right? But it begins with the mind. It begins with understandability and intelligent speech. Now, I hope you understand this. Because we can't be the kind of worshiper who says, you know what, I'm only here this morning from our own personal experience. I'm only here because the kids need religious training. I'm only here to chill because I've had a hard week and this is the one place I can relax. Uh, I'm only here to charge my battery. I'm only here because like, I want it to be like the movies, right? I want to get a chill. I want to feel something. See, that is improper. That's not the kind of worship which is pleasing to God. But we can be the kind of worshiper who begins to hear of the mighty deeds of God. Their brain just turned on. They're looking at those uh, hymns and they're just being captivated by the love of God. I mean, the last hymn was like, mm, right? That's how much God loves you. We go through the week and we might, might think we difficult situations and difficult people. It's like, God, do you love me? It's like, he loves me. Big time. When we do the New City Catechism questions, question number 50 last week, remember that? What does Christ's resurrection mean? Well, nothing. No. What does it mean? It means Christ triumphed over sin. And I have, as of yet, have never been able to triumph over all my sins. But Christ has, and he's beaten down death by his own death. Big news. What does that mean? It means he's coming back. And I'm going to get a new body. And I'm going to live forever. And I'm never, ever going to have to deal with all this ugh, in me again. Big news. Mind is stirred. So when it's time to sing, I'm letting it rip. Why? Well, Jesus has done everything for me. But see, the rest of the catechism said this. One day the world will be restored, thank God, but those who do not trust in Christ will be raised to everlasting death. See, uh, the big stuff, Jesus paid it all. Jesus won it all. The sobering stuff. Mind still engaged. Some will be given to everlasting death. And they could even be in here right now. So that means the way that I worship right now, to the outsider, to the inquirer, whew, it matters. It matters big time. So the balance is great, right? It's heart-gripping news, and it's heartbreaking news. And if the outsider then hears this prophecy, sees the new city catechism question, verse 25 again, God comes down. Conviction comes. We might have a new believer. So again, the implications of mindless, unintelligible, emotional worship is addressed for us in verse 16. When you're praising God and the Spirit, which he already said is an act of an unfruitful mind, Again, we're not used to hearing that, but it's an unfruitful mind action. Okay? He says, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer, an outsider, who's in the assembly, uh, how can even the believer say amen to your thanksgiving so they don't know what you're saying? Right? So if it's Babel, no one understands. How can you honestly say amen, so be it, as it was said, if you don't know what's being said? Right? Verse 17, you may be thanking God splendidly. Okay, perfect. You've got your edification, personal only. Okay, great. 
but it doesn't help the other person at all. So then in verse 19, Paul begins to give this instruction as one who's actually spoken in tongues. You see that there. It's pretty plain. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But essentially, he's going to go on to say, but no matter. What he's been doing now is he's been implying something, and all of a sudden, he's going to give it to us straight. Right? This is the distinction between private devotion and public worship and the use of tongues. Very, very clear. Verse 19. In the ecclesia, the gathered assembly of the people, in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, that is a massive contrast. Five words compared to 10,000 words, right? Good morning, how are you? Five words. 10,000 words. If you must know, is about two and a half of the word count of my sermons. Two and a half sermons is about 10,000 words. It's like, eh, I know, right? Paul says, <laughs> some of you are like, can you make it 8,000, Joe? That would be great. <laughs> Paul says, I'd rather, I'd rather speak five words with my mind, which might teach something to someone, than 10,000 words in a tongue, which nobody understands and only builds me up. And right again, I'd rather speak five words, which builds up the church, than 10,000 words which only builds me up. So, so you track in with Paul. This is how low the gift of tongues is in value and usefulness in the church assemblies and in the church gatherings. The gift of tongues in these gatherings are not very useful at all. He doesn't say tongues is not real. He's just saying when it comes to the gathered congregation, there are very few circumstances that would serve useful in public ministry. And even then, there's a process. We'll learn that more next time. But nevertheless, he says, I still would have, have you speak five words which can be understood than 10,000 words which are unintelligible to all. So again, we're right back to that issue of intelligibility. So here's the question, right? If Paul spoke in tongues more than any of them, verse 18... And he would rather speak uh, understandably in the public assembly. Verse 19, where in the world did Paul speak in tongues? It's a good question, right? It's a pretty simple answer. In private. In private. His expressions of tongues is in a private context. There's no audience. The lesson then is pretty clear. For those who would use tongues as the touchstone or the apex of real spirituality in public worship, now they know that clearly it is not. Actually, the use of tongues in public worship is a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of selfishness. The very problem that the church was struggling with in every part of its context. Now, stay with me. They had selfishness and immaturity and the way they practiced communion. That's chapters 10 and 11. They stuffed their faces. They didn't care about the rest. They, they sat in cliques. Selfishness and immaturity in the use of their Christian freedom, chapter 9. The gospel wasn't advancing because they held to every one of their rights. Selfishness and immaturity in how they viewed themselves, their leaders, and their judgments. That's chapters 3 and 4, right? We only follow this guy. We like this girl better. And we're going to make judgments about people now even though Jesus does it right. And finally, on the last day. Now, they thought that they were spiritual giants. And it's my experience, people who are like that usually do. But Paul says, I'm going to talk to you like a little kid, like a little children, verse 20, because you're thinking like little children. 
Right? You can't be a tongue speaker on Sunday morning and then be a slanderer with your tongue on Monday night. You can't be a tongue speaker on a Sunday morning and then hold hate in your heart when the communion plate is being passed around. You can't do that. So in the use of tongues then, this should not surprise us at all. Uh, This is par for the course for that church. They would use tongues as a kind of personal uh, banner waving and not any corporate benefit at all. Now, loved ones, if you're listening, you could say, and I hope maybe some of you are thinking, well, you know what? You could say that with any gift, and you are right. We could use any gift the wrong way, and as we exercise them, the only benefit, the only person that we're concerned about is ourselves, right? And preaching and teaching especially. Look at me, listen to me, 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 me. But Paul does not abandon tongues altogether. And so we're just going to have to weigh that carefully um, as we think this through. D.A. Carson, great quote here that I think will help us. Whatever the place for a profound personal experience and corporate emotional experience, the assembled church is a place for intelligibility. Our God is a thinking, speaking God. And if we would know him, we must learn to think his thoughts after him. Paul's conviction, which is God's truth, is that edification in the church depends utterly on intelligibility, on understanding and coherence. No edification takes place in the church without intelligibility, understanding, and coherence. So you say, well, golly, that should be a no-brainer, right? That should be pretty obvious. But I suspect some of you know this, that right now there are thousands of church all across America whose whole public worship experience centers around the false idea, oh, will the Holy Spirit uh, show up this morning? And by the way, how offensive is that to the Holy Spirit who loves the body of Christ? As if we had to do circus tricks to make the Spirit come down. It's foolishness. And how offensive it is to say, okay, when the Holy Spirit comes, when He comes on us, well, we're just going to let it rip with tongues. No one might understand anything, but we're just going to let it go, right? And so the people leave all juiced up, but only for a time. And so, so many are hurt and confused, and they're given an uneven picture of the love of God. They are given an uneven picture of the sufficiency of the gospel, and they have no idea about their standing with Christ, Right? If I'm feeling spirit and I'm feeling it, then Jesus must be great with me. But if I'm not feeling it, then Jesus must be mad at me. How immature. But it happens. A muddled picture of the church, of the gospel, and the great, great love of God. But it's not only in America. Read your mission magazines. It's happening all over the continent of Africa especially in southern Africa. Uh, The improper understanding of the use of tongues and, and even prophecy. And it's just brutally confusing young Christians and the young church there. And of course, with that confusion comes confusion about spirituality, the work of Jesus Christ demoted, the cross not preached, they're looking for a feeling, and all they're doing is taking their pagan worship, baptizing it, and trying to throw it into the church. It's not good, and people are hurt and confused. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever If Paul was addressing that situation in the West and he was addressing the situation currently in Africa, he would say to them, verse 20, stop thinking like children. In fact, he would look at the leaders and say, stop thinking like children. 
right? Use your brain. Start thinking things through. Tie yourself to biblical theology. Get the mind stirred before the spirit is stirred. The Corinthians were the exact opposite. They were professionals when it came to evil. And they were amateurs when it came to truth, right? They couldn't forgive each other. Basic Christianity. They kept judging and slandering others. They were worldly. They were proud of that uh, relationship, sexual, going on in chapter 5. And they used their Christian freedoms um, just to hinder the work of the gospel and not help it. They were professionals at evil. So Paul looks at them and says, verse 20, grow up. Grow up. Let's go. You've been a baby too long. So then in verses 20 to 25, Paul keeps staying on the same issue. Their overestimation of the significance of tongues. So he underpins the truth even further by showing them the impact tongues has upon unbelievers. So Paul's already said in the opening verses, do not harm the believer by failing to edify them in an unintelligible speech. Speak clearly. Intelligence, please. He goes on to say, do not harm the unbeliever either by creating confusion in your unintelligible speech, tongues, and he gives them a rebuke, verse 20. It's a soft rebuke because he still calls them brothers, right? They're still Christians. They're getting it wrong, but they're still Christians. He's concerned. He's supposed to. He's an apostle. He's a pastor. Now, here comes the hard part. Verses 21 and following. Somebody say, well, I, we just went through the hard part. Well, here we go. Verse 21. What he does there, Paul, is he quotes from Isaiah 28, just bits and pieces. Not a a direct quote, but it's bits and pieces of the chapter. The circumstances to which he speaks of in in Isaiah 28 was this. The people of God refused to listen and obey God when God spoke clearly in an intelligible language through the preaching of Isaiah. Okay? Because of this, God says, I'm now going to speak to you in a foreign tongue. Right? So you're not going to be able to understand, Israelites, what, what I'm going to say, and that's going to be a sign. And this sign is going to be a negative sign. It's actually going to be a sign of judgment upon you. So God says, I sent you intelligible truth, and you refuse to listen. Now I'm going to speak to you, says God, in a foreign tongue, an unintelligible language, as a sign to you of my judgment on you, a judgment on your disobedience. Now, this is the significance. Some of the Corinthians were justifying tongues by saying, you know what, tongues in worship was a benefit to the unbeliever. So the tongue speaker would say, you see, tongues is for the unbeliever. Okay, says Paul, let's go down that line and let's think it through. Verse 22 and following. Tongue speaking does benefit the unbeliever, but not in the way you think and not in the way that you're using it. Now, listen carefully. In our day, people say that tongues is a sign for believers because when you speak in tongues, that means you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they say, that's when you know for sure that you're a super terrific, high-powered Christian. Right? Once the tongues come, super terrific, high-powered Christian. Set. Paul says, no. Signs, tongues are signs of God's commitment to bring judgment. Okay, well, what way? Well, let me explain. Because tongues are unintelligible, the unbeliever comes into the assembly, they receive no understandable truth from God as a result of of the tongue speaking. Therefore, they cannot, in the way that tongues was practiced in the church in Corinth, they can't be brought to faith. Thus, verse 23, their response is, this is all madness. 
fact, the word there for madness is maniac. You're out of your minds. You're a maniac. Thereby, these people, because they don't know what's being said, are destined for divine judgment because they come into that context and they think, this is crazy. I, I remember I was in a worship service. I was probably eight years old. This is the truth. And the guy next to me was a charismatic church. I don't know how I got there. <laughs> so I talked to my mom and dad. But anyway, the guy was like seven feet tall. He could have been from Minnesota. He was right here. And he just started doing his tongues thing. And I'm like eight. And I'm looking at it like, what are you doing? And I remember him doing that in tongues. And he looked at me like, in fact, he looked at me like, buzz off, kid. And I was like, oh, you know, sorry. And I, I think I sat closer to my sister. Okay, Listen. Because tongues are being practiced there, the unbeliever will not be able to hear any intelligible language. They won't be able to hear the gospel. They won't be able to hear that they're lost, that Jesus is the answer to their sin, that their sin is getting in the way with God, and the wrath of God will come on that sin, and judgment will come. They'll never hear that. Why? Because everybody's speaking in tongues. So speaking in tongues does serve as a sign to them. It serves that they, as a sign that they're destined for judgment, because they're not hearing the gospel preached. They're not hearing any intelligible language. So, says Paul, stop your childish bent of speaking in tongues. The outsider, the inquirer, because of your behavior, is being judged. It's being judged because you can't, you're not telling the gospel. They don't hear it. They're still in judgment. So, what that means is, one, we are our brother's keeper. Because tongues drives the unbeliever away, one less chance of hearing the gospel rather than keeping them around with intelligible speech so that they can receive the gospel, right? So do you know what that is? That is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty, God has and will keep his people. His elect will be saved. No worries there. But human responsibility is, is that all that we do is tied to that evangelistic nature of public worship services. Intelligibility. We are responsible for that. So when the public worship happens and there's visitors and there's inquirers and there are believers, every one of those groups are incredibly important. God, them, us. Christian maturity. So, your tongue speaking, says Paul, is keeping them under judgment. There's no chance of them hearing the preaching of the cross Tongues then, says Paul, must take a backseat to prophecy. Okay. Not to be unkind, and I know we're running a little low on time, but just there are thousands, uh, hundreds of Christian groups in colleges and universities. And I know of so many that have been attacked by aggressive charismatics, and they come in and they say, this is what has to happen. Tongues has to happen. That's a sign of maturity. And so they come in and either leaders are untrained or just, they just don't want to deal with it. And they come in the group and they take over the group. And so you have a student who was, you know, that close to coming to Christ. Tongues happen. And they're like, you guys are, I don't know what you're doing. You're maniacs. Verse 23. I don't understand what's happening. You see? And they ruin it. And the, and the kid who was that close is out now and he's being judged still under the same judgment. God is sovereign in the affairs of people. God is sovereign in salvation. But the fact, that fact doesn't make it right for the wrong thing to happen, namely here, the misuse of tongues. Okay, that's tongues. What about prophecy? Well, look at verse 22b. It's for believers. But verse 24, it's also for unbelievers. Think about, you know, just think it out. They both come into the assembly. They hear 
prophecy. And what is prophecy? Well, it, it is the word of the Lord from the word of the Lord. So it's preaching, yes, but it's more than preaching. It could, you, it could be just you and I out there in the common area talking about Jesus, right? So hunting, cool, work, cool, family, cool, but we need to talk about Jesus, right? And so the inquirer hears that. They hear it here or in there. And since the word of the Lord is always pointing to Jesus Christ, and since the Bible is a very evangelistic book, the unbeliever will hear, they will understand, and as the Spirit of God does what only he can do and lay down conviction on the heart and then begins, please God, regenerate the heart for faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, then as the gospel is preached, prophecy, right? The word of the Lord from the word of the Lord. Then comes the supernatural and the best sense of that word. Then comes the conviction the good news brings. The outsider finally realizes, I am a sinner, right? That's what we need them to say. That's step one of being a Christian. Then Paul says, this person will be judged by all. Like judging, judging? No. The assembled believers will hear this person say, I'm not right with God. I am a sinner, right? And they begin to understand in intelligible language that they need Jesus Christ because they're still in their sins. And so as the work, as the word of God does the work of God by the spirit of God through the people of God, you see that in your Bibles, verse 25b, no more secrets. The secrets of their heart will be laid bare. Why? Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, right? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God to whom that person, that inquirer, that outsider must give an account. And there you have it. When the gifts are exercised, when God's people are talking God's word in their gatherings, when God's people are thinking about everyone and everything, especially the unbeliever, then you have a wonderful grace offered to the church. The church becomes ambassadors, prophets, in the best sense of the word, of the Most High God. Wonderful things happen, which is what? You have a conversion. You have an unbeliever becoming a believer, falling down, verse 25c, as they hear the word of God. Why? Well, in part, because the preoccupation of the Christian worshiper was not having all their needs met, a sign of immaturity. The preoccupation, even the tongue speaker, was not so they could just let it go, a sign of immaturity. But meeting the needs of others by the right use of the gifts, especially prophecy proper, because when this gift is exercised, when the word of God is taught, unbelieving people fall down, verse 25, and worship God, they are converted, and the church is built up. Question, what is the right use of spiritual gifts? Answer, chapter 14, verse 12, the edification, the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways the body's encouraged is what? People come to faith in Jesus Christ. Will you let me end with just one word? Boy, the first service, they had a rough time with this, and it was because of me. You guys helped me. It was much better, much clearer. Okay. I didn't need to tell you that, but I just had to get it off my conscience. It's done. Okay. Listen to the Bible. <laughs> 1 Peter 2. Christian, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession. That's you. Why? That you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not his people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have. And with that mercy comes some awesome, spectacular responsibilities. And one of them is the proper use of our gifts for the building up of the church for the glory of Jesus Christ. The church is at the very core of God's kingdom building work. It's a privilege to be part of it. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your help. And thank you for your mercy. And thank you for showing us how how crucial public worship is. It's fallen on hard times in the West. There's so much to do on a Sunday other than what we're doing now. We understand that, Father. But now you give us great value in what we're doing. We're never wasting time. And we're certainly not wasting time. This matters to you. This is what we'll do in part for heaven forever. So God, will you please give us the grace to use all the gifts properly, to function correctly in the life of this, your church. May we be given great grace to be great edifiers. We given the gift of prophecy as a people so that Jesus can be spoken about and talked about on these grounds and in every other place that we are afforded to go. Have mercy on your church this morning and bless her greatly, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please stand as we conclude our service.